Thanks, Matt. Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you this morning on this Easter Sunday. I hope you're well. I'm glad that you have been able to join us today. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. So I'd encourage you to turn there and have that in front of you as we um, just study this together. I think it'll be served well if over the next 40 minutes or so you can put your eyes directly on Acts chapter 13. Um, if we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Life Church, and man, I'm just excited that you're with us today. I feel like I should set things up today because I recognize that today feels a little bit out of the ordinary for us. And so let me start this way. Um, a while back, I was waiting in an airport for my flight. And uh, I was sitting in the gate area um, by myself. Um, I wasn't traveling with anyone. And so I was just there waiting, more or less, minding my own business. And it was as I was doing that that I noticed that there was a young mom who was traveling with two young children. One was an infant and one was, he looked like he was about three years old to me. Um, and so there weren't, weren't too many people around, but you know, there was nothing to do. We were just waiting. And I noticed that this young mom, like she was devoting most of her time, most of her attention to the infant that was with her because this baby was getting a little bit squirmy, a little bit fussy as babies do. And so she was doing everything that she could, devoting all of her time and energy to you know, keeping this young child from just screaming her head off in the middle of the terminal, which meant that the three-year-old boy, um, he was just getting a little bit bored and a little bit restless. And let's say he was starting to suffer from the fact that mom wasn't paying very much attention to him. Now, the other thing I should tell you about this little three-year-old boy is that he was in the airport terminal that day, dressed from head to toe in a very sweet set of Batman pajamas, right? I mean, it like looked like a Batman suit and it even had this like cape that velcroed on the back that he could like whip around himself and like, you know, act like Batman with his cape. Um, they looked awesome. I was jealous. And so anyway, Batman's there and he's sitting in the airport terminal. And he's getting squirmy. I can see that he's starting to stray farther and farther from like his mom's watchful eye. Her words to him are getting more and more exasperated as he starts to stray farther and farther away. And so I thought, the Lord has providentially arranged this moment, right? Like, I am here in this time at this place so that I can help this young mom. I'm just waiting, and so why don't I see if I can come alongside her and, you know, help take care of the little man for a few minutes while we wait for our flight. And so I grab my bag, and I, like, slide down to the end of the aisle where I've been sitting, and Batman's over there wandering around, and I just kind of look over at him, and I said, Hey, bud, do you like Batman? That was my opening line. He looked at me like I was a complete moron, right? I mean, obviously, homeboy like Batman. He's wearing Batman pajamas. And so I realized that I was going to have to work at it a little bit if I was going to really meaningfully engage this young man. And so my next question was, who do you think played a better Batman, Ben Affleck or Christian Bale? I'm kidding. I didn't ask that question. He's three years old. He wouldn't know. Right, so what I asked him was, what I asked him was, I asked him, who do you think would win in a fight? Batman or Superman? And I could see a little man, right, like his, his chest swelled with pride, right? And he looked at me and set his jaw defiantly and he said, Batman would win. 
And that was my opportunity to look at him like he was a moron. And I spent the next five minutes explaining to him that Batman is not a real superhero, but simply a rich guy with fancy toys who pretends to be a superhero. And so we had a little bit of conflict over that, right? Amen? That was the first one of the morning on that point. It's all going downhill from here. Um, we had a little bit of conflict on that, but we parted as friends finally when it was time to board our flight. Our differing views on superheroes notwithstanding. Now fast forward to last week in Salisbury, North Carolina. I get an email from the school that my sons attend. It says something like, because warmer temperatures are here and students are starting to dress in ways that are appropriate to spring and even summer seasons, we wanted to take this opportunity to remind you of the school's dress code policy. Click here to go to the school handbook and to read the dress code because this is the kind of thing that I do, I clicked here, and I went to the school handbook and read the dress code. And as I'm reading through the dress code, sure enough, there's a bullet point. No pajamas. And when I read that, I immediately thought about my little three-year-old Batman friend, right? Because what dawned on me is the fact that there is a stage of life in which it's appropriate to wear pajamas in public, and then other stages in life in which it's not appropriate to wear pajamas in public. Now, maybe you already knew that, but I was just kind of putting two and two together. I mean, we get that, right? Like, if, if you rolled in here on Easter Sunday morning and you saw a three-year-old child wearing pajamas here in the church building, like, you probably wouldn't think much about that, right? Because it's a three-year-old, and that's a stage of life where you can wear pajamas in public, and really, it's okay. But if we rolled in here on Sunday morning and I was wearing my pajamas, right, you would think that was a little bit odd, wouldn't you? I thought about doing it just to prove my point, but I didn't want to be responsible for your therapy bills later, and so I decided not to. But we all get that there's, there's a stage of life in which it's appropriate to wear your pajamas in public, and other stages in life where it's not. Now, I say that because I just want us to be thinking about the stage of life that we are in right here, right now, as we sit in this room together. Right, as I see it, there, there are really three groups of people or three different life stages that are present with us this morning. Some of us are in a stage of life where we are certainly committed, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We're Christians. That means that we believe everything that we've sung to one another already, everything that we've prayed with one another already. That means that we believe that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. We believe that Jesus Christ really did come from heaven, fully human and fully God. We believe that Jesus Christ really did live a perfect life, die an atrocious, agonizing, substitutionary death to pay the full penalty for our sins. We believe that Jesus really was sealed in a tomb, that he burst forth in resurrection power three days later, that he's risen again and even presently has ascended to the right hand of the throne of heaven where he rules and reigns over all things. And we believe that he will one day come again in power and glory to make all things right. But if you're a Christian today, you believe those things. But I need to say this, we don't merely believe those things. We have centered our lives around those things. Right? Those things are not like one planet in orbit around us in our life. No, they're the sun, the center of gravity that holds everything else in our lives in place. Right? Jesus, he's not merely one part of your life if you are a Christian. He defines your life if you are a Christian. And some of us praise God by God's grace, not because we're smarter than anybody else, but because God is kind to us. 
Some of us, we come into that, the room today and we're, we're in that stage of life. That describes us. There are others of us who we've come into the room today and we're here because we want to spend some time with family or because there's lunch that's happening later and this was kind of on the way or we just didn't want like a spouse to be like frustrated with us. We wanted to you know, make our parents happy or our kids happy or something. Some of us are here and we don't believe any of those things. And we know we don't believe any of those things. I'll just tell you, if that's you today, like I love honest people. And so I really appreciate it when you are honest enough about yourself and with yourself to say, you know what? That's not my life stage. I am not what you just talked about. And so you're here and, and your stage of life is you're, you're not a Christian. You know it. You see it. I'm glad that you're here for whatever reason you came. I'm glad that you're here. And the honesty that you have when you recognize that you are not a follower of Jesus is something that I really want to commend because that honesty is, I think, what's needed most about the third stage of life that's in the room, the third group of people that's in the room. See, there are some of us who are here, and we believe all of the things that I just said about Jesus. We don't have any problem with Jesus. We, we're comfortable talking about Jesus, even. But the thing is, like, we believe those things about Jesus in the way that I believe in George Washington. I believe in George Washington, right? I believe that he was a real guy, that he really existed. I believe that he really led the colonial army. I believe that he really like crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Eve and whooped up on some redcoats the next day, right? I believe that he was the first president of our country. I believe all of those things. But here's the thing, I don't worship George Washington. Like I don't make George Washington the center of my existence and my identity. My life does not revolve around the person and the work of George Washington. And the truth is there are some of us here and, and the stage of life that we're in leads us to be like we're, we're comfortable with Jesus, we're comfortable talking about Jesus. But we only believe in Jesus the way that I believe in our first president. We don't believe in him in a way that leads us to orient our lives around him. And if you're here and you're in this, that life stage today, man, I, again, I'm grateful that you're here. What I've prayed for you this week is that you would have the honesty and the self-awareness to recognize that that's where you're at. Because the most kind and loving thing I can say to you today is to, to just help you realize that like, if if you believe in Jesus only the way that I believe in George Washington, you're not actually a Christian. Because Christians are people who, who worship Jesus with their lives. Right? He's the center of gravity that holds everything in their lives together. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to lay a few verses. It's actually six verses. In the first service, I kept saying five verses, and I'm irritated about that, that I got it wrong. Um, six verses from Acts chapter 13. Um, before us. In these six verses, I'm just going to reflect on why Jesus is worthy of our trust, why Jesus is worthy of our worship, why Jesus is worthy of our belief. Not belief like I believe in George Washington, but believing in him in a way that leads us to surrender our lives to him. So Acts chapter 13 is the record of a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached in a place called Antioch. Um, we're looking at the very end of this sermon, starting 
in verse 36. Let me read these six verses, and then I'll unpack this for us. Acts 13, beginning in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Church, this is God's word for us today. Reflecting on those six verses, I find five reasons why you and I should believe in Jesus. Here's number one. We will all fall asleep and see corruption. Every one of us will fall asleep and see corruption. In other words, every one of us will die, and after we die, we will rot in our tombs. In verses 36 and 37, Paul is contrasting Jesus with King David from the Old Testament. I want you to listen to what he says about David in verse 36. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So David fell asleep. That means he died. He was laid with his fathers. That means he was buried and he saw corruption. That means that David's flesh and bones rotted and decayed inside his tomb. David died. David was buried. David saw corruption. So Paul is stressing the obvious here, right? He's stressing the death and decay of King David. David died. David saw corruption. We will die. We will see corruption. Now, if that point seems overly morbid or patently obvious to you, let me explain for a minute why it should matter to us today. One thing that all of us long for in life, really, is significance. All of us desire to live a life that matters. All of us desire to leave a legacy, right? We want, we want the imprint or the impact of our life to be bigger than us. We want it to last. But the truth is, no matter what, our legacies in this life will be small and short-lived. Let's say, for example, that you're someone who invests a lot of your time and energy and, you know, like your forward momentum in life, you invest that into your work, right? Work is the place where you've determined, I'm going to leave a legacy here. And so you pour yourself out for your job, whatever your job is. And because you're smart and capable and driven, right, you slowly but surely, like, rise through the ranks of your company. Eventually, like, you've got the corner office and people are reporting to you and you've, you've made some pretty serious coin and you win some accolades from your bosses every once in a while. And, and it looks like you're going to leave a pretty substantial legacy, right? Like, your work in this company is going to be the kind of thing that people talk about well past your time in that company. 
but let's acknowledge the truth, right? Like you're gonna leave that job one day, maybe you get a better job, maybe you get hit by a bus, maybe it's just time that you retire. If you retire, let's say, right, there's gonna be a day when they throw a retirement party for you, you're gonna put all of your office possessions in like a small little cardboard box, you're gonna wear the gold watch on your wrist out that they gave you for your retirement gift, and then your company's gonna hire somebody else to do your job, probably somebody younger and cheaper than you, right? And here's my question. How long before the office that was your office starts to feel like his office or her office? Right? Is that a matter of days or weeks? It's not more than that. So it doesn't matter what you did for a living, what you do for a living. It doesn't matter how much you invest. It doesn't matter how skilled and talented you are. The legacy that you leave there, it will not last long beyond your tenure there. No matter how successful you are, that legacy, it's going to be short-lived at best, right? Or change the scenario, let's say that you're not trying to like build a reputation for yourself at work, you're trying to build a reputation for yourself in your community, right? You want to be known as a good neighbor. That's a good thing. Jesus talked about being a good neighbor. It would be, be good for us to strive to neighbor well in our communities. And so you want to be that kind of neighbor who everybody knows that they can count on you. Like if they run out of something at the last minute, you're there to help them. Um, when new people move into the community, like you're, you're dry, walking down the street like with a freshly baked loaf of bread that you take them as like a welcome to the neighborhood present. Um, when your next door neighbor's out of town, you mow his lawn without him asking you to. You just do it. If you see that somebody's trash can is still on the curb at the end of the day, like you wheel it up to their house for them, right? Like you're, you're that kind of neighbor, right? You just go out of your way to bless everybody around you. That would be a good thing. But what kind of legacy does that leave, really? Because there's going to be a day when you move out of that house, right? Maybe you're going to upsize. Maybe you're going to downsize. Maybe you're going to be headed to the nursing home. Maybe you're going to be headed to the funeral home. But that address at which you live is not your permanent address. You will move out. Someone else will move in. And how long after that happens before your neighbors stop talking about what a great neighbor you were and they start talking about what kind of neighbor that person is? Church, here's what I'm getting at, right? We're not immortal. We're not eternal, which means that despite our best efforts, our legacies will always be short-lived. We will fall asleep. We will be laid with our fathers. We will see corruption. Death, it will come for us. It is an inescapable reality for all of us. And if we hope for significance that truly lasts, we need a hope, a power that lasts beyond death. We need a resurrection. And here's where I'll speak to you for a moment. If you are like a self-acknowledging non-Christian in the room today, right? Whatever brought you here today, friends, like, again, I'm just so glad that you're here, but I want to plead with you to consider the limits of your mortality. If you are not in Christ, then very little about the life that you've lived will matter for even one nanosecond beyond your last breath. We just don't leave legacies that last. If you have any hope of making a difference that lasts, any hope of leaving a legacy that lasts beyond people tossing dirt into your open grave, then you need the hope of a resurrection. You need the hope of Jesus. And so the first reason we should trust in him, the first reason we should believe in him, 
is because we will all fall asleep and we will all see corruption. The second reason we should trust in him and believe in him is because Jesus did not see corruption. Right? How does Jesus offer us hope? Well, it's because he died, he was buried, but he didn't decay. He rose from the grave instead. That's the point of verse 36, right? Verse thir- I'm sorry, verse 37. Verse 36 is about David. David fell asleep. David was laid with his fathers. David saw corruption. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up, that's Jesus. He did not see corruption. And so I want you to notice a few things. Paul never denies the fact that Jesus died he says it, right? Jesus fell asleep. He never denies the fact that Jesus was buried like David. He was buried with his fathers. But unlike David, Jesus did not stay dead. The tomb was empty on Easter Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death. And so he proves that there is a power greater than the power of death. He proves that there is a power greater than the corruption that death brings. Now, apart from that power, death, decay, and corruption, that's just going to mark our lives, right? That's all we are going to get. It used to be, like, a decade ago as a pastor, I had to work really hard to, like, persuade people that this was true, right? And so I, I would say things like this. I would say, you realize that, like, you're uglier today than you were 10 years ago. And I meant it, right? Because unless you're like 22, 23, and spend a ton of money on product and a ton of time in the gym, right? You are uglier today than you were 10 years ago because that's what happens to the human body. I mean, okay, it was more than 10 years ago that I had hair, but I used to have hair, right? Like we just, we are drifting towards corruption. We are drifting towards decay, all of us. Our bodies are breaking down. And so I remember like 10 years ago pleading with people to, to wrestle with the fact, right, that they were not invincible, that things were going to fall apart in their lives. But then 2020 and 2021 and 2022 happened, and I found that I don't really have to work very hard to persuade people that things fall apart anymore. Right? All of us, we've walked into this room with a bit of a limp from the last two years. Right? People that we've known and loved, we've lost them due to COVID. Relationships that mattered a lot to us have fractured because of political or racial tensions. Right? Some of us are downstream from significant economic upheaval. We're watching a world war, it seems, unfold on our TV screens right now. Right? I don't have to work very hard anymore to persuade people that things fall apart and that everything in life is moving in the direction of corruption apart from the resurrection power of Jesus. By the way, this, this drift toward corruption, it actually proves that what the Bible says about sin is true. You see, according to the Bible, the world that God created had no corruption. Right? God made everything, and everything that God made was good, Genesis 1 says. And then God installed humanity as the crown jewel of his creation, and God said that humanity was very good. And so in God's paradise, there was no corruption whatsoever. You didn't get uglier over time. But then Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, they sinned against God, and that sin, it brought corruption into the world. It brought corruption between Adam and God and Eve and God. It brought corruption between Adam and Eve themselves, and it brought corruption into every molecule in human existence. And so socially, spiritually, psychologically, and physically, everything in the world is moving in the direction of corruption. The evidence 
that things fall apart is everywhere. But the message of Christianity is the hope that God doesn't leave us in this corruption. Right? He sent His Son Jesus into this corruption to face it, all of its trials, all of its pains. Christ suffered under that corruption when He came to earth. On the cross, most of all. Now when we suffer, it's always in some way deserved because we're sinners. But when Jesus suffered, it was totally undeserved for He was and is completely righteous. Yet He faced the corruption of this world anyway and He died. But our blessed hope is that Jesus did not see corruption. He possessed a power that was greater than the power that was corrupting the world. He was raised from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that God has brought into the world the power to undo what is wrong with the world at its very core. He's brought into the world the power to fix everything that is broken. To bring chaos back into order. To bring wholeness out of corruption. He's brought into the world the power to make everything sad untrue. Jesus did not see corruption, therefore corruption will not have the final word. And so if we turn to him, if we trust in him, if we surrender our lives to him, he says that we can be raised with him. And so we won't see the corruption that the world sees. D.A. Carson so one of my favorite theologians, and he's, he's famous for this line. He says about Resurrection Sunday, he says, there is nothing wrong with me that a good resurrection won't fix. There's nothing wrong with me that a good resurrection won't fix, which means every single one of our problems is undone ultimately by the empty tomb. Jesus did not see corruption, which means there will be a day when you don't either if you trust in him. That's why he's worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship. All right, here's number three. Jesus is the only way to forgiveness. The third reason why, according to this passage, Jesus is worthy of our trust is because he's the only way to forgiveness. Look at verse 38. Paul, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, friends, I hope you know that only God can make an offer like that because only God has the power and the authority to forgive sins. We see that in the the gospel stories of Jesus' life, right? Anytime he talked about forgiveness of sins, people just freaked out because they recognized that only God had the power and only God had the authority to forgive sins. Why is that the case? Well, it's because only the offended party can forgive the offender, Right, if I come over to your house with my youngest son Carson and he spills pink lemonade all over your white suede sofa, it does no good if I turn to Carson in that moment and I say, Carson, don't worry, I forgive you. Or because Carson didn't offend me. Or he didn't ruin my white, white suede sofa, he ruined your white suede sofa. You're the only one in that moment who has the power and the authority to forgive him. In the same way, only God has the power and the authority to forgive sins. Only God can say forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. We should trust in Jesus because he's done everything necessary on the cross and through his resurrection to forgive us of our sins. Number four, the fourth reason why we can and should believe in Jesus. He's the only way to freedom. Look carefully with me at verse 39. 
Paul, he says, and by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, just for the sake of time and clarity, let me put that another way. What Paul means is that we should trust in Jesus because the best moral instruction and the best religious rituals in the world cannot offer us freedom, but Jesus can. But that's what Paul's saying here. When he talks about the law of Moses, he's talking about the best religious instruction, the best law, the best morals, the best religious rituals. He's talking about the best of everything because those are things that God gave, right? God wrote the religious laws of the law of Moses. He wrote the religious rituals of the law of Moses. Those are things that God himself handed down. It does not get better than those things. But the thing is, those things are simply not capable of freeing you. They're not capable of granting you freedom. I mean, you might think that you can have life by keeping all the laws and following all the rituals. But the truth is that if you do that, like if you do your best to follow all the law of Moses, and if you do your best to follow all the religious traditions of Moses, then you're going to be enslaved to those laws and those rituals. And you'll fear all the time that you might mess up your obedience to those laws and rituals and therefore lose the life that you have. What we need is not great teaching. What we need is not great religion. We need something better than that. And we'll actually be crushed by fear that we might mess things up if we try to find life through law or through religion. Now, to people listening to Paul 2,000 years ago, this statement here, it was like a lightning bolt, right? Because people 2,000 years ago, they believed that law and religion were the way to find freedom. They believed that if you just kept all the laws and observed all the rituals, then you would be free. What about people today? People today tend to believe the exact opposite, don't we? People today tend to believe that law and religion are obstacles to freedom, not pathways to freedom. Because our modern idea of freedom is what the Disney princess says. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Right, the modern idea of freedom is that you're only free if you follow your own heart and chase your own rainbow. The modern idea of freedom is that anyone who seeks to tell you what to do, how to live your life, who you should be, who you shouldn't be, anyone or anything that tries to impose their limits on you is actually an obstacle to your freedom. They're hindering your freedom. That's what modern people think. But the issue with this modern idea of freedom is that it will inevitably destroy you in the end. It will become like a fire that burns out of control, a fire that consumes more and more and more of you until there is nothing left in the end. That's what the great American preacher from the 17th century, Jonathan Edwards, said. He said that sin makes the human heart a fire. And what does fire do as it burns? Well, it consumes more more oxygen, more fuel, until there's nothing left. There's never been a fire, Edwards said, that naturally burned less and less fuel or oxygen over time. Right? A fire burns whatever it can get, and then it demands more, which is exactly what the human heart is like when we feed it. 
If you try to feed your heart with possessions, your heart consumes those possessions and then demands more. If you try to feed your heart with physical, sensual pleasure, your heart will consume that pleasure and then demand more. If you try to feed your heart with comfort or security or success or wealth, your heart will consume those things and then demand more until there is nothing left for your heart to consume and then it will have just consumed you. When we let our hearts burn whatever they want, when we follow our hearts and pursue our own idea of freedom, we'll eventually burn ourselves to death. But what Jesus offers is something completely different than what the law of Moses offered, and it's something that's completely different than what you can get by following your own heart. Something better, something different, something greater than all of the worldly freedom that you can find. Something better, something different, something greater than all of the religion you can find. Jesus offers you himself. He says, I'm enough. I'm what you really need. If you have nothing else and you have me, that's enough. If you have everything else and you don't have me, that will never, ever be enough. Because I'm the only way to true freedom that won't burn you up in the end. And so we should trust in Jesus because he's the only way to truly be free. And lastly, we should trust in Jesus because we have everything to gain if we do and everything to lose if we don't. Look at our passage. One final time with me, verses 40 and 41. Paul ends his sermon with these words. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, And then he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. He says, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now, I hope you hear the words, the language of warning in those verses, and the words in the language of invitation. They're both there. Paul is saying there's a way to to be astounded by the fact that Jesus is risen from the grave and yet still perish. But he's saying there's also a way to be astounded by the fact that Jesus is risen from the grave and live. Both of these are there. Now in our culture, sociologists and psychologists, they've identified this like a growing phenomenon among us. I bet you've heard of it. It's called the fear of missing out, right? It's especially prevalent among like young people. It's heavier where there's like lots of internet usage and social media usage. Like basically the idea of the fear of missing out is that you get paralyzed into doing nothing because you're afraid that if you choose one of two options, you're gonna choose the wrong option. So if you're a young person trying to decide between like this party and that party, like you don't go to either because you're afraid that you're going to go to this one and then photos on social media are going to show up that suggest the other one was better. And so you stay home. That's the fear of missing out. It, it, it paralyzes you and leaves you gripped by fear so that you do nothing. It's the fear or belief that a better option might always exist than the option that you've chosen. Well, Paul is giving us an option here, an invitation here. And my point this morning is that there is no better option that could 
possibly exist. There is no better invitation that could possibly exist. By inviting us to believe in Christ, Paul is inviting us to enjoy eternal fellowship with the God who created us through Jesus Christ. He's inviting us to enjoy forgiveness, freedom. He's inviting us to never see corruption. We have everything to gain by accepting this offer and everything to lose if we don't. On Easter, I often think about a letter written by a man named Adoniram Judson. It's a real name, by the way. Adoniram Judson uh, wrote this letter to the father of the woman that he wanted to marry. Judson was the first overseas missionary from America in the year 1812. When he was 23 years old, he sailed to Burma so that he might share the good news of the resurrected Jesus with people who had never had the opportunity to hear even the name of Jesus. With him sailed his wife, Anne. They had been married for a total of 12 days when they departed. Now, Anne would never return to America. Both Anne and Adoniram gave their lives to see Christ treasured above all things in Burma, they served there until they died. Well, this is the letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to Anne's father asking for her hand in marriage. And at the time, he knew he was headed to Burma. He wanted Anne to go with him, and he knew that if Anne went with him, there was a very good chance that they would never, ever return. He puts all of that on the table when he writes this letter. These are his words. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this, he goes on, for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of the resurrected kingdom and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means, from eternal woe and despair. And Naram Judson wrote that letter to Anne's father. Anne's father let her decide. She said yes. She chose to spend her life and to give her life for the glory of Jesus Christ. And church, I think about that letter on Easter because it shows us what true belief in Jesus should 
look like. It shows us what faithful trust in a resurrected king will do to us. That faith will move us to treasure Christ above all things, to live for Christ above all things, to lay down our lives for Christ if he calls us to that. Church, may we be astounded and saved by our crucified and resurrected King Jesus. Pray with me. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of your son Jesus this morning. Help us to to recognize his true worth and help us to recognize when and how and where our lives fail to reflect that true worth. And so give us eyes not just to see the beauty of Jesus this morning, but give us eyes to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to recognize the stage of life that we are in. And give us faith that if we trust in Jesus, that if we are astounded by Jesus and respond in faith, that we will be saved. I pray, God, that here in our midst, right now, among us, I pray that you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. We pray these things in the glorious name of our resurrected King. Amen.